Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldicott, and in this program we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well-being. So if you love this planet, keep listening. Hello and welcome to If You Love This Planet. My special guest today is Brian Victoria, a professor of Japanese studies and director of a program at Antioch University in Yellow Springs, Ohio, titled Japan and its Buddhist Traditions. He holds an MA in Buddhist Studies and a PhD from the Department of Religious Studies at Temple University in the US. Apart from numerous journal articles, Brian's major writings include Zen at War, Zen War Stories, an autobiographical work in Japanese and a translation of The Zen Life by Sato Koji. In addition to his US citizenship, Brian is also a citizen of Australia and New Zealand, where he previously taught at the University of Adelaide and the University of Auckland. In terms of today's program, one of the most interesting aspects of Brian's career is that he is both an 18-year veteran of the US Air Force and Army Reserves, as well as a conscientious objector to military service, who completed two years of alternative service duty in Japan. In other words, he has looked at the issue of military service and the killing it potentially invokes and involves from both sides of the issue. Brian Victoria, welcome to If You Love This Planet. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Helen. Now, Brian, I'm particularly interested in your exploration of Buddhism in Japan and Zen and the like, because when I was a little girl, we lived in constant fear of being invaded by the Japanese. We had um, blackout blinds, there were searchlights, Dad built an air raid shelter in the garden, Um, Mum was terrified that we'd be speaking Japanese soon. So we had a terrible fear of what the Japanese were doing in the Pacific, they in fact got into Sydney Harbour, they bombed Darwin Flat, one of our cities, um, and that our prisoners of war under the Japanese were most horrifically treated. The cruelty was just obscene. And so I'm particularly fascinated with your research of Buddhism back at that stage and how the men would um, sacrifice their lives in their planes uh, for the for the beauty of their religion and the like. Would you like to please explain to us what all of this means? Because I've always thought Buddhism was a particularly pacifistic, um, if you like, religion. Well, Helen, you know, it's a, <laughs> like, it's a very long story, and especially when you ask a scholar. Uh, but the thing, one thing I think you have to, especially Australians need to remember, and this is controversial, and that is, well, it's not controversial in terms of, of uh, history, and that is that during World War uh, I, uh, Australians and Japanese were uh, allies. Mm-hmm. They fought together. Yep. And their Japanese uh, naval ships came to Australia, and they were greeted warmly, 
and then they accompanied Australian uh, troop transport ships. They gave them protection on their way to Europe. So I think one of the key things we need to remember really here is what um, Winston Churchill said in that nations have no uh, eternal friends or eternal enemies. They only have uh, eternal national interests. And so when national interests change, unfortunately, people who were once friends can become enemies. And so at least that is part of the story. Part of the story is that these horrendous things happen in war uh, because the states, the people who are in charge, decide that that's what they want to have happen. Now, coming back a little more to Buddhism, uh, when Buddhism was first introduced in Japan in the 6th century, it was introduced as a religion that would, quote-unquote, protect the state. Oh, really? And, yes. And that was why, and in fact, not only was it um, introduced that way, but the reason it was introduced from the Korean Peninsula was that one of the kings uh, on the Korean Peninsula wanted to have an, a military alliance with Japan against the other kingdoms. And uh, he saw that if he sent these statues and, and uh, this new religion... Uh, that the Japanese uh, emperor, the then emperor, would be so impressed that he would agree to a military alliance. So in one sense, Buddhism has, from the very beginning, from the get-go, has been part of uh, not simply protecting the state, but part of the state's uh, reliance. Uh, or I think one of the things that, that my study shows, and this I think is true for all religions, and that is the state relies on religion to legitimize, especially to give it uh, moral legitimation, and that this is how religion comes into uh, to being used by the state. Uh, so that's another part of the story. But another part of the story further is that when Japan first went to war in, in the modern period, uh, it was uh, supported by the West. Uh, that is, <laughs> all of the countries, including Australia, who didn't want to see Russia uh, expand into the Far East. And so when uh, Buddhism, particularly I've written about Zen Buddhism because Zen Buddhism was very closely connected with the warrior class in Japan. And as you know, the warrior class has been, was in control of Japan from uh, the 1200s right up until the modern period, until 1868. The samurais. And um, so it provided, the, it provided a, a metaphysical basis uh, for the warrior class to, to rule, uh, again, a legitimation. And that legitimation then was used uh, when uh, Japan fought against Russia. And at that time, uh, the West uh, was very happy to see Japan uh, fight against, uh, this is, we're talking about imperial czarist Russia now, mm -hmm. because it was able to stop uh, Russia from expanding into the Far East. And, of course, the reason that that was important was because uh, America and uh, all, and the other and England and so forth, uh, they didn't want any more competition. <laughs> so and from there, unfortunately, things go downhill, as it were, because of course uh, Japan then decides to establish its own empire in Asia, first taking over Taiwan and then over and Korea and then Manchuria, and at that point, of course, the Western countries become alarmed, and uh, they see there's a need to put the screws. Uh, to, to bring Japan to heel, as it were, and to stop its expansion. And as it does, as the Western powers then put, uh, you know, they refuse to sell oil, they refuse to sell, sell 
scrap metal, etc., etc. As they put those kinds of restrictions on Japan, why, of course, that is seen in Japan. Uh, you know, the West has its colonies all over the world, including in Australia, from that, from that point of view. And when we want to have our own colonies, we're not allowed to. And that was then seen as, you know, the, the white people, Western uh, imperialists, uh, refusing to allow anyone else to get into the game. And that, of course, then eventually led to World War II. Yeah, but you haven't talked about the role of Buddhism. Okay, all right. So coming back, remember, I have talked about the fact that Buddhism was introduced in order to protect the state. Yeah. And then, particularly Zen Buddhism, was very closely allied with uh, the warrior class. And it gave them uh, a metaphysical basis. For Let me give you an example. Um, one of the things that warriors have to do is they have to go to war, <laughs> and they have to fight, and uh, they're likely to die. And so if you, there is certainly, for every warrior, uh, there's a desire to fight and kill the other, but there's a, a desire not to be killed. And so one of the things that Buddhism, or Zen Buddhism was in particular, was this, uh, its teaching was that everything is ultimately empty, including the self, including the I, because we're all subject to change at every moment, and that this is true for oneself, and it's also true for the enemy. And so even though, even though Buddhism has its, as its very first precept for both lay and clerics, its very first precept is do not kill. The Zen Buddhists were able to get around that uh, prohibition by stating, look, everything is ultimately empty, so whether you kill on the battlefield or whether you are killed on the battlefield, nothing has really changed. And they put that together with the actual practice of meditation. Now, we, t we tend to think of uh, you know, Buddhist meditation as being very peaceful, but in fact, meditation is a form of mental concentration. And one of the things, especially on the battlefield, what you need, you need to be is very concentrated on your work, which is killing other human beings. And meditation can be used, or I would say abused or misused, in order to promote uh, mental concentration on the part of the warriors. And that was also found very valuable. So on a metaphysical basis, as well as on a very practical basis, then Buddhism, particularly Zen Buddhism, was uh, very useful uh, to the soldiers. That's really obscene. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how they it can is. commit higher cowrie and shove the sword into their bellies and go down with their planes and everything, feeling it was all just right because that everything's really empty anyway. They're empty, the enemy's empty. If they die, it doesn't really matter because they're empty. Is that kind of what it is about? That is, that's part of it. But also, you know, there's a tremendous... We, you know, when we think of terrorists today, uh, we think of, you know, we ask, why do they hate? Why are they, how, why are they so full of hate that they kill, uh, that they blow themselves up and these other people up? But from the point of view of the, of the terrorist or the soldier, they don't see themselves as consumed with hatred. They see themselves as being willing to sacrifice themselves mm. for the good of their people, mm. for the good of their religion, for the good of their cause. Mm. And so what they see themselves as not consumed with hatred, but was consumed with self-sacrificial love. And altruism. And altruism. For the tribe. That's very hard for the other side to see. 
but it's, it's been true throughout history. It's and, really and nuts. Say throughout all religions. Okay, so let's go back to your theory about tribalism, because that's what I've thought for a long time, that nation states are really tribes. And I guess I saw it when I landed in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, the night before 9-11 from Australia. I was going to speak to, I don't know, several thousand university students the next night. And I woke up in the morning and turned on the television and saw the planes flying into the World Trade Towers. And as I walked across the campus that day, some woman approached me. She had a stall and she said, are you a Christian? And I said, no, I'm a pantheist. And she she psychologically attacked me. She said, you'll go to hell. And I thought, oh, my God, this is a really creepy place. And I thought, what am I going to say to these kids tonight? Because they're in, you know, this Christian, so-called Christian campus. So I got out the Bible and I read Luke. When Jesus said, love thine enemies, do good to those who hate you. And I thought, okay. So the, I based my whole lecture around that. And they they filed into the room ashen-faced after, you know, what had happened. And I tried to induce in them the teachings of Jesus that you don't go and kill with vengeance. You you try and understand what the hell is going on with, with your enemy. Didn't do any good, of course. And as I and of course I was going to fly to Paris to speak, I don't know, can't remember what, but there were no planes flying except the planes that flew the whole of the bin Laden family out the next day, interestingly enough, under Bush. Um, and then I had to catch a Greyhound bus across America three days later. And every mum and pop store outside said, God bless America. And the whole country was swathed in American flags. And I thought, oh, my God, this is going to yes. be ghastly. And in the name of America and God bless America, so America went and killed over a million people in Iraq, um, one half of whom are children, and I don't know how many people they've killed in Afghanistan and the like. So I realised at that time that America was a tribe. So with that precept there, would you like to go back, Brian, please, and explain to us from an academic perspective, don't be too academic, but just explain <laughs> to us, you know, about your theory of tribalism going way back to when we were troglodytes and what it means. Indeed. Well, you know, today to talk about being uh, a tribe or a member, but what we all, all of us, all of us on this planet forget that we were once, our ancestors were once members of tribes. And not only were they members of tribes, but they lived in that way for tens of thousands of years. So we tend to think, if, if I were to ask most of your, your radio uh, audience, uh, what tribe do you belong to, yeah. or what tribe did your ancestors belong to, probably, uh, perhaps with the exception of the uh, aborigines listening in Australia, uh, I would probably get no answer. People would say, I don't have a clue. And in fact, I think they'd be rather happy that they didn't have a clue, because there's a tendency to think that tribes were very primitive and that uh, they were uncivilized, et cetera, et cetera. So it's almost it's you don't want to know <laughs> what your ancestors were doing in those days. But I think tribes have gotten a very bad reputation, actually, and uh, for a lot of different reasons. But at any rate, uh, tribes were very moral groups. Uh, and what do I mean by moral? I mean by the fact that if you were a member of a particular tribe, you didn't steal from other members of the tribe. You didn't lie to other members of the tribe. You didn't harm other members of the tribe. So in that sense, from one sense, they were quite moral. But on the other hand, uh, and, in a, and in a, they had a religion, 
and the religion was was focused on the well-being of the entire tribe. You know, well, let let us if we have a rain god, it's not just the rain falling on my fields; it's the rain falling on the fields of all of the tribe or the animals, uh, etc. So it was always for the benefit of the group, uh, and there was a very strong morality within the tribe. But where what's the problem? The problem is, of course, is that morality ended at the the edges of the tribe, whether that was a you know the boundary, a land boundary, or a water boundary, or whatever it was. And then for those other people in other tribes, they were not even seen as human beings. And so, as far as going out and stealing their their cattle or or killing them if they encroached on your on your pasture, that was all acceptable. In fact, not only was it acceptable, it was laudable. And so what's happened is that we have, I'm suggesting that what's happened is that we have, we, li- we human beings lived in that manner for tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. And it was, it was something that I won't say it's not bred into the DNA. I have no proof of that. But it's bred into the consciousness. Oh, I bet it is in the DNA. I bet it is. It may well, and that's, that's something you can talk to. Hopefully you'll be, you'll be able to get a guest in the future who can talk about that. But mm. at any rate, uh, what we see then happening, something, something though, amazing happened uh, between about the, the years uh, 800 uh, BCE and 200 BCE, and that is you have in China, you've got Confucius and Laozi who, who uh, created Taoism. And then, of course, in India, you have a, a person like Gautama Siddhartha who was, became the Buddha. And then you have Socrates and Plato in, in Greece. And then you have Jeremiah and Elijah and so forth, uh, Isaiah in uh, Judea. And what they all discovered was this, that religion is not just for one's, one's group, one's tribe, that these religious truths hold uh, are true for all peoples everywhere at all times. So that was really the birth of universal religion. The technical term for that uh, was given by a German philosopher called uh, Karl Jaspers. Was this was the uh, axial age when when the human consciousness uh, had a, a major turn. So that was six hundred BC. Yeah, that was between uh, eight hundred and two hundred uh, BC. Fancy that. Yeah, and so that that really from and I and I fully agree with that. That was a major trans and. It really points to the fact that human beings, as a collective group, in all of these different areas of the world, at a relatively speaking, almost at the same time, awoke yeah. to, to to this reality of a universal religion. But and 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 another good, if you want to call it another good part of that, was that suddenly human, the, the, instead of being uh, centered totally on the collective well-being of, of the tribe, mm-hmm. suddenly it became uh, centered on uh, what was the good life for each individual human being? Uh, what was salvation? How do you give meaning to, to the individual? So that, we see that, I, I think that's another great, uh, and we certainly appreciate that today, that all of the major, the universal religions in the world today are concerned with the well-being of the individual. But where I differ with Carl Jaspers and where I think he went wrong in a, in a certain sense is that he thought that this universal religion had supplanted our tribal identities and that we had, we had moved beyond that. Mm. 
But I'd like to suggest exactly what you experienced in America was exactly that point. I mean, we, not only what, what you experienced in Wisconsin, but just think of, of every president, including Obama. What, how does he end every one oh, of Oh, yeah. God bless flaming bless America. America. <laughs> right? I say to yeah. the Americans, look, when I'm giving lectures, I say, you're not the greatest country on earth. What about Australia? We've got kangaroos, and that makes everyone <laughs> laugh, you know. But it's ridiculous to say they're the greatest country on earth. It makes me feel sick, physically sick, when I hear that. That's right. It's such arrogance. And it is. But, 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 you know, it's, and Helen, you're absolutely, totally correct. At the same time, though, it's very hard when you're in a cultural bubble to see your, to see your own self as well. How do now, you mean? What do you example. mean by that? All right. What I mean by when I first went mm-hmm. to Australia and taught at the university, I had to put my uh, children in a school in, uh, in Adelaide. I looked around at the schools. One, I won't name the names, but I looked at one of the schools said their motto for the school was uh, Pro Patria et Deus, for God and country. Yeah. Right? And where, when you went to visit the school, right up in the front, they took you into the chapel, and there were all of the names of the Australian soldiers who had died fighting in the war to end all wars. Yeah, yeah. Of course, World War One. And so I said, now, I knew from my other experience in New Zealand, let alone in America, what that really means. What it really means is that when a country goes to war, they imagine, they project that they are fighting not only for their country, but they are doing God's work, yeah. fighting evil, yeah. crushing evil. And so what we see in every country, unfortunately, is when they, when they go to war, they equate their nation, which, and I, of course, I see the nation as the, as the uh, contemporary tribe, uh, and they conflate the two, and they convince themselves. I think when we look back at World War One, even in Australia, that we don't see that as the great moral crusade that it was painted at the time, right? It was no moral crusade. It was just a mass slaughter. I know, but it was presented. Oh, it was revolting. It was how many, how many a... millions of young men were killed in that war for no reason at all? How many millions? Do you know, the... Brian? I don't know the, no. the numbers, but it was many millions. And, you know, and that's what, one of the things I'd like to... Uh, I have an appeal for your audience here, Helen, if I may, and that is I hope that they will take a look at this film called Joy Noel. Joy... No, Mama, French is terrible, French is terrible, but Joy Noel. Merry Christmas. It's Joyo. Joyo Noel. Joyo ah, Noel. Joyo, all right, Joyo. Thank you for that. All right. This was a film uh, about... True, uh, true historical incidents that occurred the first Christmas Eve of uh, 1914, the first Christmas Eve of World War One, And what happened is that the, the soldiers on both sides, the trenches, to make a long story short, they started singing carols. One side sang Silent Night, yeah. the, the Scots, you know, then with their bagpipes, and it ended up with a, a Christmas truce. Oh, I've got, goose, I've got goose pimples. Oh, and it was, and the next day, then of course they they had well that night they had a, they came out of of the trenches and they had a mass uh, in Latin in Latin uh, for both sides and they had a joint uh, a, a joint service. The next day they said, well it's Christmas Day we can't go back. We, let's so they say, well we'll bury our dead who have been out there in no man's land. And then they said, well why not have a a friendly soccer game? So they had a soccer game. And then they shared the photographs of their wives and their children and so forth. 
the next day, the 26th, that was the day they should go back to. Now, this was all done informally without, of course, the permission from the generals. So it was all done locally, and it happened at a number of different places, and the film just describes one of those places. It comes to 26th, and they said, well, they look across, and, well, there's my friend over there. <laughs> Am I going to start killing him? And they knew they started, they're going to have this artillery barrage, so they send a runner over to the other side. Well, our side is going to have this artillery barrage. You come and shelter in our trenches while they're doing that, and then, of course, the other side returned. Now you come and shelter in our trenches, and they, were, they refused to go back to war again. So the thing I get out of this is, here's the uh, tremendous, you know, you probably heard of Christopher Hitchens, who has I a book, God is Not Very... <laughs> All right. Now, where I disagree with him, he thinks that religion poisons everything, that it has no hope, and that it, it, it inevitably, the tribal part of religion comes, comes to the fore. But at any rate, I, I, you know, that's certainly true. But here was an example of where religion, the Christian re- faith, could unite uh, both sides who were, you know, who were enemies, who were killing each other, and they could overcome that uh, thanks to the Christian faith. But then the film goes on, sadly, when the generals hear about what's happening on, Bloody on the front lines, oh. <laughs> oh, they become, so they, they go, you know, totally <laughs> berserk. And they, they, and particularly the person that they blame for having done this is the Roman Catholic father who had led the mass of the Soviet the, on the on the no man's land uh, on Christmas Eve, he is the one who started it all. This fraternization between the two sides. So they cashier him. He's thrown off, and they send a new bishop and, uh, and a, a bishop. And he says to the to well, in this case, he happens to be a Scottish bishop. And he says to the new troops who've been brought in, look, the Germans are the devil. They are evil. They kill men, women, and children. We must kill every one of them in the name of God. This is a holy war. So again, you see, again, that tremendous that fight that I suggest goes on to the present day between, between religion as a source of universal truth and universal salvation versus religion as a source of my tribe, my nation, at all costs. Mm. I'm interviewing Brian Victoria, who's the author and professor of Japanese studies at Antioch University in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Let's go back, Brian, if you will. You talked about when they first got into religion way, way back, and then the Universalists came in and said, look, it's not just our tribe that we've got to save, but religion means salvation for everyone. What do they mean by salvation? Can you explain that? Because I don't understand salvation. What do you mean by that? What is well, salvation? Uh, you know, every religion, every religion has a different uh, definition. So to, to, to give any particular religion's definition of salvation uh, would, I think, is unfair to the other religions. But certainly I think we can agree that, you know, we human beings... Uh, you know, first of all, the basic thing is we know we're going to die, and none of us wants to die. That's the only <laughs> certainty we have in life. Death. Absolutely. Yep. And so then the question becomes, uh, you know, as Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And so people at some point in their time, they ask, you know, why am I here? What's the point of my life? Uh, especially I know I'm going to die, and I don't want to die, and I'm afraid of dying. And so they begin looking for meaning. What is the purpose and meaning of my life? 
because they're afraid to die? Well, I think that's at least part of it. How will that uh, fix the fear not, of death I'm, by finding meaning? I don't understand that. Well, it, it, it kind of, you kind of back up from death to life. If, if you think about, and this is one of the things that Buddhism does, you do meditate on death. And it seems very morbid to meditate on death. But the point of meditating on death, believe it or not, is you come out saying, you know, all right, I, fi- I finally, I, you know, first of all, look at our language, even in English. Uh, we don't say that someone died, usually. We say they what? They passed away. Oh, I think that's pathetic. They haven't passed away. They're dead. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know. how many but patients I'm... have I certified as dead? <laughs> Their hearts are not that's beating. Not... They're dead. They're a lump That's, of meat, let's be frank, you know. <laughs> they are. But, of course, you know, and maybe Christians would accept that, except they would say, yes, but their soul, they have an eternal soul. Yeah. Their soul has escaped their, their mortal remains and is now uh, on its way to God, etc. Flying and up of course, to notice, notice what happens, too, uh, Helen, uh, when uh, a soldier dies. Mm-hmm. That is, when the funeral is given for the soldier, inevitably... You never, and I've, I've seen this in the outback in Australia, too. You have these uh, monuments for the World War I and World War II, and the, inevitably the verse they, they uh, quote is, uh, No greater love hath a man than he lay down his life for his friend. Now, of course, soldiers are not always laying down their lives for their friends. They're trying to kill as many of the enemy and not get killed themselves as possible. But the reason I bring this up is that they are eulogized as having after they've died, defending their country, defending their God, defending their faith, they're eulogized as having gone on to live in eternity with God. And so certainly part of salvation uh, is this idea that one can uh, transcend death, that one can continue in some way beyond death. Now, I think that's part of it. But another part of it, uh, again, is that when you do meditate, when you think about death and realize that it's going to come, we, we normally try to avoid that in our daily thinking. But when you really think about it, what you come, the, what you, one of the parts that, that comes out is you truly understand and appreciate how precious each moment of time that we do yes, have I agree. is yep. because we are going to die. So then the question, how, what do we do? How do we live? What are our goals and our purposes? And at least all of the religions in the world offer some, some sense of, of what the good life, of what a, a godly life, a religious life, uh, a purposeful life, they all offer that uh, direction uh, for humans. And for many people, that's very, that, you know, there's a great deal of solace in that. I think we can understand it. We might not personally need it or find it valuable, but I think we can understand that many people would. And to the extent, I, as I always say to, to my classes too, um, I think it's wonderful that there's so many religious understandings in this world and that we should respect them all until one point. So what's that one point? Until they teach that they have some right or that there's some justice in forcing other people <laughs> to believe what they believe or that there are some other people that they determine to be evil and that they have a right to kill them in the name of their God. I said, this is where I think religious tolerance, we have to build up a, a, a common human recognition that religious tolerance has its limits. 
All wars are fought in the name of God. Well, of course, or sadly they to are. say, they in, are. The, in the name of Buddha. <laughs> no, but, but certainly... <laughs> they are, you know, and that just makes me feel sick. First of all, let me say what I think, and all people right. might be offended, but I am a scientist, I'm a physician, I've helped numerous people to die, um, many children who had a fatal genetic disease. Um, I don't think there's anything after life. I have always been terrified of dying myself because I had a near-death experience when I was 18 months old. So one of the reasons I did medicine was to try and get some control over myself so that I could, you know, not die. But of course, when I did medicine, <laughs> I had so many differential diagnoses when anything appeared like a lump or something that, you know, I only had three weeks to live sort of thing. That didn't help me. But as a scientist, clearly for me, there's nothing after, you know, you've ashes to ashes dust to dust and the other but I've always been terrified of ending the, of me me you're there because I can hear you I can talk to you my senses pick you up but if I get into this too deeply and I think about me ending I could end up in a mental hospital that's so profound and I understand why people are frightened of dying the other night I went out and I live in a little fishing village in Australia and the skies are so clear and the and the stars are so sparkling and so many billions of stars and I looked up at that and I thought I'm part of that and suddenly my fear of death went away because I realized I'm part of the whole universe and I feel better about it now and that's lucky because I'm going to be 74 soon and I'll be dying before very long so my fear of death went, but I am absolutely fascinated by religion and I think a lot of religion has been formulated, as you've said, because people are terrified of dying and I do understand that terror. Well, I, you know, and I may I, at least from one point of view, Helen, what you just underwent when you looked at, this, at, the, at, the, at the universe was not a, a scientific understanding of the universe, it was a very personal, existential, mm -hmm. and may I say, a religious understanding. No, I don't think it was religious. I just think well, it's acceptance, it's certainly, you know? It's certainly what, it is the kind of understanding that religions have long, within the Buddhist faith, I could explain exactly what happened. What? Uh, but my point being, it is in that area, that awakening, that awakening, and especially you mentioned the fact that your fear of death disappeared. Yes, it did, but, but, it was, but it was a scientific awakening, I think. You know, that's reality. I am part of the universe. Every piece of me, every atom is part of this universe. And before I was born, I was nothing. Before I was conceived, I was nothing. When I die, I'll be nothing, you know. And I guess I've finally accepted that reality, which is terribly hard for people to accept, and I know it's hard because... I've helped so many people to pass through their stages of grief when either their children are dying or they're dying themselves. Um, but, you know, you just mentioned, we mentioned just a short time, about the DNA. Yeah. Now, you didn't create the DNA. No. Nope. Uh, and we are all, you know, we are the, you know, from those first little fish that crawled out of the ocean, <laughs> from those billions. We are the, the culmination, the product of all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, those millions, in fact, billions of years of life on this earth, each of us carries that with us, and each of us 
even if we don't have children, each of us has impacted on this planet and impacted on those around us in a way, in a sense, you know, we do, if our DNA is transmitted through children, that that's one way that it's continued, but just our impact on ourselves and our environment, in a certain sense, we do live on, not necessarily as, you know, even as individuals, but particularly uh, as, as biological mechanisms, uh, you know, we're, it's not really just us and then it ends because it is, and I think this is part of, and one of the reasons, by the way, Helen, I love your program is because I think what we're trying, what your program is trying to do is what I'm trying to do as well, and that is to help us bridge the gap between our tribal selves and our universal selves. And part of bridging the gap, of course, is to recognize our universal selves. We're not just universal in terms of this planet. We're universal in terms of we're made of the same stuff, mm-hmm. as it were, as this entire universe is made. And that somehow we need to, to go beyond. We need to, to uh, transcend our limited understandings, our limited tribal concerns, and become aware of, of as you became aware, of our unity with all that is, uh, and recognize that, of course, we human beings do have it in our capacity now, thanks to nuclear energy, to destroy at least uh, much of what is on this planet. Mm. I'd like to just introduce another aspect of this as we're discussing it. You know, I've addressed thousands of audiences in my time, comprised of thousands of people, particularly during the Cold War, where Americans were taught and conditioned to hate the Russians, as you said, nasty people who kill and kill their children and all of that stuff, that sort of projection of enemy image. And when I when I talk so often, I would, as a doctor, describe the medical effects of nuclear war, which are absolutely horrific and ghastly, and people would be terribly impacted by that, and they'd, they'd often weep. It was so profound. Um, and then at the end, when I'd given a whole lot of data and cred- and my credibility was therefore established with the audience, you could feel them sort of heave a collective sigh and they'd relax. And then they kind of would let me into their souls. And then I would talk about the beauty of life, that smelling a rose or smelling the wisteria or seeing the up- apple blossom come out. And then if I could, I'd find a baby in the audience and I'd hold the baby up, this little tiny organism, and I'd say, this is what I'm talking about. This is universal. And usually at that point, people would weep. And I knew then that the beauty and purity with which each of us is born, and I've delivered many babies and you see that purity, is still there in the heart and soul of every human being, despite what wicked lives they may have led or greed and corporate lives and even killing and the like, it's still there and it still can be tapped, I think, in everyone, maybe not sociopaths, but everyone else. And it's that hope that I have that impels me to keep going because I believe if we can tap into that and if there's a leader who can inspire and bring out that purity in all people like Gandhi did, like Nelson Mandela did with his purity, that, and I suppose Jesus, and I suppose Buddha, and I suppose, you know, all the great prophets, that we can work together, uh, rise above our tribalism, and work together for the goodness, not just of ourselves, but the 30 million other species uh, 
that inhabit the planet. And as I speak, I'm looking out on the magpies walking around and caroling, the most beautiful birds in the world, and the and the honey eaters and the wattle birds just outside here in this little fishing village. That's the beauty. And I think that everyone fundamentally connects with that and that we can rise above this kind of primitive DNA tribalism that we have. What, would you like to comment on that, Brian Victoria? Yes, yeah, and I think, I, of course I agree with you, Helen, and I just add that uh, the hope that I find, actually it's, it's just kind of a strange way to say it, but the fact that when, when nations go to war today, that they have to, that, you know, America, if America, it would, if America could say, hey, Iraqis, you've got some oil over there, and it's unfortunate you have it because it really belongs to us, and we have, bigger, we have a bigger army than you do, so we're going to just go over and take your oil, and, uh, you know, and if we'll kill as many of you as we have to kill in order to get it. Yeah, that's exactly now, what happens. Beings, yeah. If human beings could say that, I would say there's no hope for us. Yeah. <laughs> but human beings can't say that. Human beings have to, first of all, gear up and make it into a moral crusade that it's done not just, it's not for the oil. We're, do, we're doing it to give, bring democracy to the yes. Iraq people. We're doing it for all of these wonderful reasons. Yes. And, of course, we're, we're seeking revenge for what they did to us, supposedly. Yeah. Now, so that is the hope. That's the hope that I have, and that is if we can see that our, if we can really come to and look honestly at ourselves in the mirror and see, especially when we look at our past moral crusades, and see that they weren't moral, they were totally immoral. Mm -hmm. And that if we can see that in the past, we could hopefully look to the present and to the future and say, we're not going to accept our universal religions to be used in a tribalistic way anymore. Mm -hmm. We refuse. And that, you know, uh, if we, that we could collectively say to President Obama, yes, ask God's blessing, but ask God's blessing for all people yes. in all nations in the world. And all species. And, and all species, too. And what I did that, That's the blessing that we seek. So we, you can see, I think, as you said, we have that potential. We human beings have that potential. And so I, I'm hopeful in one sense. I think there is, we tend to think of evolution as only evolution in, in terms of, of the physical changes. Mm. In, in, but I think, you know, especially from this, this uh, axial age that I was talking about, we can see that there is evolution in human understanding, mm. too. Mm. And that hopefully, you know, that's why I feel your work, Helen, and, and hopefully in, in, in one sense my work, too, that, and, uh, that we can, that we human beings have it within our potential now that we're aware of how evolution, in a sense, works, uh, the survival of the fittest. But what we now understand, I think, is that none of us can survive without each other and without the rest of this planet, and that we can evolve that our understanding, we can awake to that feeling of unity and the importance and the beauty, the beauty and, and refuse to, we can transcend our tribal morality and our mentality if we make a concerted effort. And that's why I'm part of your program, and, that, and I think that's what your, what your movement is about. Well, it's survival of the psychologically fittest. And I yes. suppose some would say the spiritually fittest. And that, that's what we all should strive towards and attain. But what I didn't say when I was doing my little soliloquy about speaking to an audience and the purity of their souls was it so, was so fascinating because 
When I first came to America in 78, almost every person I spoke to said it's better to be dead than red. And I said, what? <laughs> oh, we don't want to be communist. And I said, you'd rather die in a nuclear war? Yes, they said. So I said, well, what yeah. about the pygmies in Africa? They'll die too. And they said, oh, they don't want to be communists. And as we, the doctors, got around to teach people how god-awful nuclear war was and how they'll be vaporised with nuclear weapons... They started to reach out to the Russians. The Quakers went there and whole delegations of religious people went over to Russia and they made friends with them and they found out that the Russians were capable of wonderful intimacy. In fact, quite a few women fell in love with Russians because they're so passionate. And it was absolutely fascinating to see them discover that the so-called enemy that was set up by the state happened to be absolutely fabulous people and that too gave me tremendous hope um and that's what we need to see by people traveling and going to iraq and to afghanistan and to other places where and, and iran i've been to iran my my brother was um a diplomat there and we went there we went to if uh, we went to um What's the capital of Tehran? We went to Isfahan. We went to Persepolis. And it was so wonderful. And, you know, they're Persians. They're Persians. Yeah. They're not Arabs. And all the streets are named after poets in Isfahan. It's so fascinating. And yeah. we're demonizing them now. Um, and but, you know, isn't it, isn't it strange? You know, yesterday, by the way, I, went, I participated. I'm uh, here in uh, Osaka. Yes. And... Uh, Participated in an anti uh, Sayonara nukes <laughs> demonstration uh, yesterday. And one of the things I said to them is that you know these problems, nuclear problems, they're not Japanese problems or American. Problems. I mean, they are they are the human race's problems, mm-hmm. and we're either going to 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 uh, solve it together or we're all going yeah, to perish that's together. That's correct. And in one sense, it seems almost don't you sometimes get there's a race between. You know, on the one hand, it's strange. I could almost say one should feel thankful for nuclear energy and nuclear power because it's so horrendously destructive that when human beings awake to that realization, mm. they can't just they can't accept the old truths anymore. It's those people over there are evil and they're out to get us. That they, hey, we you know we're all going to perish. We're we're all going to live together. We perish together as fools. That. There seems to be some kind of a race between whether human, whether the, the power that human beings have under their control will be will actually destroy humanity, or whether it will frighten us finally, frighten us into recognize, into recognizing uh, that we have to join hands with each other. I Sometimes I always, I guess, you know, where are the Martians when we need them? I mean, you can imagine <laughs> <laughs> if the aliens, if we had an alien invasion tomorrow. We all of all of we human all of these little these these struggles between ourselves would all be forgotten. We're all human beings. We're living on this planet. We've got to protect ourselves from those guys out who are these aliens who are about to invade us. And I, that would create world peace too. I also think that we must be conscious of our own anger um, and abnormalities that were conditioned into us in our childhood. For instance, I had a bit of a rough childhood. My mother beat me and the like. And it's very easy, I think, for us if we remain fairly unconscious to project that anger out onto others. And I think part of, well, I suppose you could say spiritual growth is to recognize your own anger 
and abnormalities and own it and not project it out onto anybody else, but rather for us to be united in our love. And that, that sounds corny. It sounds like Californian sort of candy love. But I'm talking about... It also sounds religious, Helen. Oh, well, no, I'm not. No, no, I'm, I have to be really careful here. But, you know, I've got a vegetable garden and I'm, I'm growing lemons and the, and, the, and the citrus trees are about to flower and, and um, I'm growing kale and cabbage and cauliflower and... And my vegetable garden and my roses are going to bloom soon. That's, for me, my spirituality. I guess that's why I call myself a pantheist, because Pan was the god of nature. You know, that little guy who used to play a flute and he had little horns on his head and he had cloven (laughs) hooves. And I would say I that... Because I suppose ever since I was a little girl, I was fascinated by if you drink water... Where does the urine come from? You know, does it go straight through and st- straight out? Or So I've always wanted to know how and why, and that's what nature's about. It's so absolutely fascinatingly complex and amazing. And I think that if we worship that and the, na- and the, and, and the, and the brilliance of the human body, when you think about the body itself, that the heart beats you know, for 90 yeah. years and never yeah. stops till you die. What an amazing situation that is. Right. Um, that, for me, that is the sanctity of life and it's present in every organism from the tiniest single-cell organism all the way through to us. Right. You know, I think we can see too that, you know, certainly you can see that in your garden, but when it comes to things like the words you just used, love or compassion, mm. It's it's a little more difficult to see that in nature, I think. Do you? Uh, because um, you know, it these um, these concepts you know concepts are rather hard to to put into physical form, and of course that's why in Buddhism, for example, you have uh, statues of uh, Kannon or Ami or Avalokiteshvara as the personification of compassion. And of course, she, this statue is generally given feminine features because the feminine, the mother uh, principle uh, is seen as uh, embodying compassion. And hopefully men can also come to realize that uh, we have it in us too. Uh, but at, at the same time, I think that's where religion can play a positive factor is that when it can project... Uh, these uh, conceptual ideals and, and make them, in a certain sense, uh, give them a, a, a kind of physical reality or uh, some, something we can see and touch. Well, I don't, I don't it, think... It is helpful for some people. Yeah, well, I don't think conceptual ideas are going to do it. I think that you've got to get out in nature and get the dirt under your fingernails and smell the smells of nature and the gum trees, the eucalyptus trees and the orange blossom you've got to experience it you can't conceptualize it and to have you know a a statue made of stone doesn't do it you that i get my greatest insights my knowledge when i'm out in nature in my garden suddenly i'll know something you know just suddenly and i it's nothing to do with god or anything it's just me being quiet and i guess my psychological apparatus talking to me and I think that we're not quiet enough that we listen to this awful loud music all the time we're all the time distracted yet 
the wisdom with which we were born is always there. If we're quiet in nature, we can tap into that. Do you agree with that, Brian? Oh, absolutely. And of course, when I went, uh, you know, I've undergone training at a, in, in a Buddhist monastery. Yeah. And uh, they, silence is absolutely <laughs> golden, as mm. it were. Mm. And it's for that same reason that we have to get in touch and listen to ourselves. The only thing I'm, perhaps you and I would disagree with, Helen, is that uh, there is that old expression, you know, uh, different strokes for different folks. Yeah. And that each, that, you know, each person is an individual and mm. that they, they can connect to uh, themselves and to their environment. And I certainly agree with you totally that silence is, is probably the, 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 on, <clears throat> the point of uh, entree to, to most of this self-discovery. Uh, but that various peoples and various uh, cultures, etc., do it in different ways, mm-hmm. and that we should celebrate the diversity, just as we do the, the, the diversity of nature. Well, I agree. And then uh, we've only got four minutes, but I want to end up with a couple of anecdotes. Um, on my part, I, um, I was speaking recently um, about men and women and how women are 53% of the Earth's population. We are pretty nurturing because of our hormones. Estrogen, progesterone, oxytocin are very nurturing hormones and have an impact upon the physiology of the brain. Um, and a man came up to me, and, and, and how women don't really play a role, an adequate role, I don't think, in salvation of the planet. A man came up to me, he said, you know, I've got prostate cancer, and he said... I had my first dose of estrogen the other day, and for the first time in my life, I felt like shopping. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And then another guy came up to me too, and he said, you know, I've, I'm, I've got cancer. And since the diagnosis, suddenly a rose has become incredibly beautiful and the perfume. Yeah. And so by fate, by being at the coalface of life and death, one suddenly realizes how precious, how extraordinarily precious just the existence of oneself is and and what what an incredibly beautiful planet we live on. Yes, indeed. And how how and yet how close we are to destroying it. At the and, very same time. This this is of course uh, on on the other hand, maybe until we have that existential dread, as you did with the nuclear weapons, mm. until we have that fear, maybe we can't wake up. I don't know. But I would like to share with... Uh, I, I have at the end of my article that's on, on the Internet um, on holy war, toward a holistic understanding, I do quote a, uh, a rabbi, David Gordas. It's a very short quote. I'd just like to share okay. it with you. Uh, it says, more than ever before... Independent religious communities and cultures must come to terms with the reality of the interdependence of all humanity. Prior to our identity as Jew or Christian or Muslim, prior to our identity as male or female, as Indian, British or American, is our fundamental human identity. Both the nobility and the tragedy of human experience are universal. They cross religious and national lines. This must be part of the religious insight and teaching of all religious traditions. Our very survival on this planet is dependent on our successfully navigating this terrain. I think that's a wonderful insight. That's a beautiful quote to end uh, this really quite fascinating and very different program, Brian Victoria. 
<laughs> but it's been a lot of fun and, and, yeah, really fascinating. I thank you so much for this interview. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. My guest today on If You Love This Planet was Brian Victoria, author and professor of Japanese studies at Antioch University in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Again, thanks for listening today. I, I hope you all got stimulated to think a bit more and work out what we're going to do to save this precious existence of ours. And um, I look forward to being back with you next week with a, another interesting uh, discussion, whatever it's going to be. Thanks for listening today. Bye for now. You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States, including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, if you love this planet.org.